we continue on our Lenten journey, learning how to float well down the river of grace. Learning how to float well down the river of grace. Uh, I just, I think it's a beautiful image, this idea that there is a, a spiritual river that is available to each and every person on the planet and that we are invited through repentance to get in the water and begin following Jesus and encountering his love and grace. And as we get in that water that God has given us tools that we can use, that we can practice, and those tools are vessels of grace. It's like having a, a, you know, a tool being a boat or a raft or a paddle or some other avenue of making the most of God's grace for your life and experiencing the life he offers there. So last week, the vessel of grace we looked at was the power of the small group community, that that is where we can grow the best together. This week, we look together at the, the blessing of the word of the Lord that we find in the scriptures of the Bible. Here in John chapter 5, starting in the 39th verse, Jesus is talking with the religious leaders of his day, and they have been searching the scriptures for life, but they've somehow tried to find it without Jesus. And so he critiques uh, sort of their exploration and use of the Bible. And uh, here is how the story goes, starting in the middle of the 39th verse. Jesus said this, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. You see, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. So how can you believe, since you accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I'll accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? This is the word of God for you and me, the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be God. to God. Will you pray with me and for me? Come Holy Spirit, we look to you today to guide our hearts, minds, and thoughts, to challenge us and motivate us to step deeper into your river of grace with the help of of your word. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in Jesus' life and ministry, it seemed like he was always butting heads up with the ancient religious leaders and with those back in the day. And here, once again, he bumps heads with them as they think that they know the scriptures, they think they know this book well, and they think they know where the Bible is headed, but somehow they have looked for truth and life in the Bible, but have tried to do it without Jesus. And so Jesus begins to point to them and encourage them that if we're to find the truth of God's word in this book, 
It has to be connected to Jesus and help us get to know and encounter the living Jesus in our lives. And so, brothers and sisters, as we look together, Jesus' first statement is a statement that should encourage us to the habit of seeking him as well by our own reading and study of the Bible. Look again what he says in those early verses. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. That very first verb, in that very first verse, in verse 39, you study the scriptures diligently. Older translations or other translations will say, you search the scriptures diligently. And that is what we are to be about, brothers and sisters. We are to be a people who are hungry to search for truth and life and joy and God's best grace experience through the words of the Bible. Now, some may say, well, isn't Jesus critiquing these folks here? Yes, he's critiquing them. But what's interesting in that very first verb is that it's a verb that's a command in the present tense. It's a present tense command verb. So what he, in fact, is saying is, you all, you are searching the scriptures, which you should be doing, and which you should continue to do, but you're doing it the wrong way. Because if you do it and you don't end up with me, then somehow, some way, some shape, some form, you've gotten it wrong. You see, over and over again in the Bible, it seems like, especially in the Gospels, whenever Jesus interacts uh, with the teachers and the leaders, that somehow, some way, they've gotten the heart of this book wrong. And so we want to develop a relationship with the scriptures that helps us grow to be God's best, where we get it right at least, at least 80% of the time, right? I don't know anybody can get it right 100% of the time, but at least 80% of the time. And so we want to encourage you to be one who searches the scriptures because that is another one of the avenues and tools and methods for us Methodists, right? There's a reason we're called Methodists. It's because we were taught to search the scriptures in this book. So let's talk about the Bible for a little bit. Why, why the Bible? I mean, there are a lot of uh, ancient texts out there. There are a lot of ancient scriptures that we can go to that are different from the Bible. What is unique that brings me and, and others like me to the scripture, this book in particular, over and over again. Well, the one thing that does is in human history, this, as far as we've been able to tell, is the one source of coming to belief in a one creator God who created the whole universe. This is it, right? You say, well, what about Islam or what about Judaism? You know, well, they get their source in this book, right? The idea that God is personal, that we can know him, that we can be in a relationship with the creator of the universe, there is only one source for that truth, and that is this book. And that's on 
you know, not even including everything that Jesus came and said and taught and did and died and rose. I mean, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection ought to be proof enough that there is a, a uniqueness in history and a uniqueness in truth surrounding this book. Not only that, but that it has touched not just hundreds of lives, it has touched and spoken to millions and billions of lives as God spoke in this book. Now, as we talk about God speaking in this book, what does that look like? What does it mean? Well, well Paul reminds us, right, that, that the Word of God, and when Paul talks about the Word of God, he's talking about the Old Testament. He's not even getting to the Gospels. He's not even getting to his own letters. He's saying the Old Testament is breathed by God. It is God-breathed. That is, it is inspired by the creator of the universe, and the creator is, in fact, its author. But it's not, God isn't the sole author. Let me try to dig into it this way. Um, one example I've heard, like, I don't know who built this sanctuary. Anybody know the name of the, whoever built this sanctuary? No? That goes back too long ago, I guess. So instead, we'll have to go to London. In London, there's St. Paul's Cathedral. I know who built St. Paul's Cathedral. The architect for St. Paul's Cathedral was Sir Christopher Wren. He designed it. He conceptualized it. He thought about it. And it's because of Sir Christopher Wren that for over several hundred years, St. Paul's Cathedral is the wonder and amazement and beauty of sacred space that it is, right? But yet, did Sir Christopher Wren put one, you know, put one stone on the other or put one brick on the other? No, he probably had hundreds of people working for him that laid the bricks, that did the dirty work, that put up the stained glass, that did everything to build St. Paul's Cathedral. Scripture is a similar way. Uh, scripture, in a sense, is, is a type of incarnation. We talk about the incarnation of Jesus, and what we mean by that, right, is that Jesus is both fully divine and fully God, but he is also 100% fully human. And somehow those two identities and those two realities are mixed in one human person whose name is Jesus. The Bible is described in a similar fashion. The Bible is both 100% divinely inspired and divinely spoken, but it is also 100% a product of human authors who lived in particular cultures, in particular places, at particular times in history, with different backgrounds. Some were politicians, some were prophets, some were priests, some were leaders, some were fishermen, some were tax collectors, all sorts of people from all different walks of life speaking together of one similar encounter and reality of who God is. And so in a similar way, if we're to understand the Bible well, we hold both of these things in our heart, in our, in our mind at the same time, that the Bible is a human book, but the Bible is also a God-spoken book. And mysteriously, somehow, someway, it's both totally, completely, perfectly at the same time. 
And if we're to interpret it well, unlike uh, the Pharisees so long ago, then we have to keep in mind sort of the three principles of good interpretation. Or three things that either some we have to avoid, some we have to keep, right? The first thing is, is if we say that this book is just a human book, then we keep it mute from being able to speak to us. We just say, well, some guys wrote this, and they put some wise things about this, and some wise ideas about this in this book, but it's not really divine, it's not really God-breathed, it's not really words from God, it's just a human book, and that's all it is. And there, there are people who, when they talk about the Bible, that's how they would talk about it. But if we talk about the Bible like that, then we miss out on allowing the reality, the truth, the life that Jesus talks about in this very scripture from touching us. So we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to, it's, the Bible is so much more than just a human book. But we can then swing the opposite direction and we can go too far that way. We can say, you know, that God the Bible is God's word and God wrote it and so the human authors they don't really matter it doesn't matter that they wrote it thousands of years ago it doesn't matter you know but we're just we're just going to take it only as God's stuff that there's no human elements in it at all it's like God sort of you know kind of zapped people and possessed them and took them over and then they wrote it but I don't think it was quite that way. Yes, they were inspired. Yes, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. But yes, they still came from their own cultural perspective. They still were writing in different genres of poetry and, and history and letters and apocalyptic. And they had all that stuff before them that were literary, literary genres that, that were popular in their time of writing. And we have to take all that into context. Why? Because if we just say, well, God wrote it, and that's all I need to know, then I fear that we hyper-literalize the scripture in a way that it was not meant to be hyper-literalized. For instance, for me, when I look at Genesis, Genesis is never meant to be a scientific textbook. It was written way before science, a thousand years before science ever existed. Now that doesn't mean that the Lord couldn't have inspired and spoken some scientific insights into the early chapters of creation in Genesis. But it still also means that to, to handle it in a healthy way, I have to realize that the early chapters of Genesis were written in some ways similar to other ancient Near Eastern creation stories that would have resonated with the people of the day 3,000 years ago. And that's okay. Because God was trying to say something both then and now that's significant. The truth is there. So we have to find some way to mix these two together because oftentimes a lot of the mystery of this book is the human component. Those are the things we tend to wrestle with a lot. But the the divinely inspired God component is there and full and speaks all the same. And then the third piece, which is the piece that Jesus talks about here, is that we have to understand the Bible through the lens of the person of Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is our best lens because he was God in flesh. He is our best lens to understand the Old Testament right and to understand the New Testament right. And so if we are to understand this book in a way that brings not just eternal life, but better life for our lives today, then we need to make sure it's helping us come to Jesus. If we read this book and never come to Jesus, then like the Pharisees and the religious leaders of old, we've totally missed the point. Because scripture is not the end, right? Scripture is a vehicle to the end. The end is being able to hear the Lord Jesus speak into our lives, to be shaped with the heart and mind of Christ, to be filled with the love of Christ, not just for God, but for others, and to live that out day in and day out, a life that reflects God's holiness, God's love, and God's glory. That's the point. And so that's how the scriptures guide us in that. And, and we see how Jesus was shaped by scripture too. Even the Son of God uh, listened to his Father's voice in the Old Testament. You know that, right? For instance, when he went out into the desert and was tempted, and out there in the desert, the devil said, well, why don't you turn these rocks into bread because you haven't eaten in 40 days? Jesus said, I'm not going to do that because I don't need food. God's word is enough for me in this moment. I don't have to satisfy myself with food. And then the evil one came along and quoted the Psalms to Jesus. And he said, this Psalm says you can jump off the pinnacle of the temple and God will save you. So go do it. And again, Jesus said, no, that's a misinterpretation of that Psalm. We're not supposed to put God to the test by doing dumb things because they're dumb. So I'm not going to do that. Not only that, but the scripture shaped his purpose. It shaped his mission. It shaped his call. It shaped his destiny. As he, you know, walked along the road headed toward Jerusalem, he knew exactly where he was headed and why he was headed there and what would happen there, all because the Old Testament was pointing him in that direction every step of the way. So he had guidance. He had purpose. He knew his mission. He knew how he was supposed to live and how he was supposed to love and how he was supposed to reach out not to the saved, but reach out not to the righteous, but reach out to the least and the last and the lost and make sure they had the good news and had a good chance to get into the, to the river of grace and flow down its stream. He taught about generosity. He taught about all these things in light of the lesson from his father in the Old Testament. And so this scripture can shape our lives too, if we'll let it, right? And I, I can think of at least two reasons why maybe we were slow to let the scriptures shape our hearts and lives. The first is, is some of us may say, it's just too mysterious, I just don't get it. It's a different world, it's 2,000 years ago, 2,000 miles away, and I'll just, I'll never get it. But brothers and sisters, I promise, yes, there's a lot of mystery in this book, right? There's a lot that even I 
would have a hard time teaching on, maybe Revelation or Daniel or some of that. But brothers and sisters, there's a lot of obvious stuff in this book and important obvious stuff in this book, right? And if you will read it enough and just pick out the obvious stuff and do it, then what Jesus says is, if you'll obey me in the small things, guess what? I'll begin to help you understand more. I'll give you more and more and more. But if we don't even give it a chance, Jesus says, then the good news that you've had, I'll even take that away, and you'll be left with nothing. So brothers and sisters, our first challenge is just to realize that, that the creator of the universe wants to meet with you, wants to encounter you, wants to shape your mind, wants to shape your heart, wants to shape your life, wants to be active in all those ways. And one of God's best ways to do that is for you and him to spend time in this book. Now there's a second thing that I think sometimes keeps us out of this book, and that is, uh, you know, maybe we were drugged to church as kids. And so we went to Sunday school, we went to church, we know all the stories, we're familiar with it all, you know, and so we say, well, you know, I, I kind of know what it says, and I kind of know what it wants me to do. But to me, brothers and sisters, remember, we're talking about a river of grace here, right? And to me, that's kind of an attitude like, I'm in six inches, I can feel the grace on my toes. That's good enough. You know, just get a little wet with grace. But it's not enough to really move me closer to God. But I'll just stay here six inches, and that's good. Because I've heard the stories. I know what they mean. I know what I'm supposed to do, right? But brothers and sisters, in this book is so much depth, so much wisdom, so much spiritual insight, so much... Uh, Blessing, so much joy, so much possibility. It's all in this book. It's in the deeps, though. And to get into the deeps, you've got to step into deeper places besides six inches. You've got to get in over your head. You've got to get in where you almost feel like you're going to drown because so much overwhelms you with it. But we're made to strive and to go into the deeps. And so we want to encourage you today, how do we search the scriptures like Jesus commanded them to do of old and commands us still today? What will that look like? Well, a couple of key things. The first key thing, and I think this is one of the primary things that, that the scholars of that day missed that Jesus was getting on them about, and that is we must come to this book humbly. We must come to this book humbly with an open attitude, open heart, open mind. Because you see, if we come thinking we already know it all, that we already have it all figured out, then it makes it very difficult for God to speak anything into us. This book is our authority for living life and faith. It's our authority for encountering eternal life in the person of Jesus Christ. And in that journey, if you're going to get, if you're going to mine what is in this book, if you're going to listen for God's voice, we have to come to it with an attitude of humility. Let me give you kind of an example of that. For instance, a lot of us today, our primary worldview shaping is a political worldview shaping. We're either shaped conservatively or we're shaped progressively, right? 
And as Christians, we can come to this book as a conservative person and say, well, the Bible's definitely a conservative book, and Jesus was a conservative Savior. But progressive folks, you too, you can come to this book and you can say, well, I see Jesus here loving people who nobody else would love. That's a progressive thing to do. That's a radical thing to do. And so the Bible is a very progressive book with a very progressive Savior. And the truth is, is Jesus is Jesus. And we shouldn't be trying to put him into one of our boxes because there are moments when, yes, Jesus will seem more progressive than we can imagine, and there are moments where he will seem more conservative than we can imagine. But ultimately, in this book, we've got to let him be him so that he can shape us and mold us and make us into his image. And it's not going to look totally conservative, and it's not going to look totally progressive. It's going to be some mysterious, I believe, mixing of those kind of things. Because there are moments in Jesus' ministry where he got in trouble because he was way too progressive for these religious leaders. And there are moments in this book where he was more conservative in his moral thinking than the, than the you know, greatest scholars of his day. He can head both directions in one instant. So we have to come to it with humility, trying to listen for its truth, especially trying to wrestle with those things that the first time we read them, we say, oh, I just, I can't buy that. That's just too crazy. That's too radical. That's too different. In those passages, which are probably challenging passages, the prayer I would offer would be, Lord, I don't get this. Lord Jesus, can you help me see how the Father speaks and how you speak in this passage? Where is it true? How do I interpret it well? How do I interpret it in particular in the light of your character, which I know is love and mercy and grace, whose nature is also holiness? How do I interpret it putting all those pieces together? We come to it humbly. Number two, we, we need to come to it consistently consistently. I would love for everybody here and everybody watching online to just develop a Bible reading habit. And you don't have to be perfect at it. You know, to me, if you could read five chapters a week, or maybe even a little less than five chapters, it would be like five days, five chapters every week. Uh, if you would just do that and make that a regular part of your avenue of grace, I promise those five chapters over the course of your next year and two years and ten years will shape your heart and life in life-giving ways. You don't have to be perfect. You can shoot for seven days a week, but even I, I, I do six. I don't do seven, I do six. Today's kind of my day off, you know? <laughs> even a preacher needs a day off, I guess. But I do six days a week. I've been reading... Now, I'll be honest, I read half the Bible every year. I've been reading half the Bible every year for like 20, 25 years. So every two years, I'm reading more than the Bible every two years. So it's just, it's constantly going through. So anyway, do it consistently. Find a time, like the morning is good because it can set up your day. But if you're a night person and that's the only thing that works, then do it at night and that'll set up your sleep. 
But not only humbly, not only consistently, but third, do it prayerfully. Read it prayerfully. One of the best things you can do as you, as you begin to read is say, Lord, help me see you in this book. Help me come to you in this book. And help me find you in this book. And as you begin to read, you're just looking for observations. What's an observation? It's reading the story or reading the lesson and what pops out. Pops out as interesting, pops out as important, pops out as a life lesson. Observe. Secondly, then you interpret. We begin to turn our observations into what does this mean? And in particular, we've got to ask what did it mean when it was written? Who is the author that wrote it? Who is he writing to? What were they going through? Were they going through good times? Were they going through bad times? Why would he have been saying this to them? Why would John have wrote about Jesus talking about the truth of Scripture and receiving the glory of God in a way that they'll encounter Jesus? Why was that important back then? And then in the light of that, we move to application, right? In an application, we begin to ask, okay, what's one thing out of this chapter I've read today? Not ten things, not five things, but what's one thing that I can say, yes, I get it, and I'll do my best to live it. And go do that one thing. Go live that one thing. And if you will obey the word a little more every day with whatever insight you get that day, then I, I, I promise you, the Father will give you more. Because the Lord loves us to say yes to his voice and to do what he says. And if we begin that process and just do it a little bit, guess what? He wants to be with you more. He wants to speak to you more. He wants to guide you more. And so today, brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you for our Lenten habit to pick up your Bible, to get it out, and to begin reading prayerfully asking the Lord to guide your life in its words. Now, I want to be honest. Um, in this quest, you're going to have a lot of days that seem like you don't get a whole lot out of it, especially as you get to know the Bible well, right? I mean, for me, if kind of once a week there's an aha moment, that's, that's an aha moment. I can think just this week, um, I was reading, I've been reading through Mark's gospel. I'm going through the New Testament this year. And as I got to the end of Mark's gospel, uh, I got to him being captured and taken before Pilate and taken before the priests and nailed on the cross. And just once again, for I don't know why, but there was a freshness to the story, almost like I was reading it for the first time, where the Lord just reminded me, this is how much I've done for you. This is how much I've done for the world. I didn't have to go down that path. I could have run back to Galilee. I could have called down thousands of angels and just zapped everybody. But this was the path I was made for. And so I chose this path because, Chris, you matter to me. And you as well. And so if you get those little nuggets once a week, that's a nugget of grace that's pushing you further down the grace river toward a living relationship with Jesus. And if every month you get one or two days 
where you've needed a word from God and just one or two days a month you get that word in a deep, satisfying, healing, freeing way. Just once or twice a month. That's a great avenue of grace that'll bring life into your heart and into your world and into all that you do. And so receive that and believe that those are the precious moments you're looking for. But that doesn't mean that God isn't with you through all the other moments that maybe are a little tougher. It's developing a habit of being a person who searches the scriptures. Now, you know, some would say, well, Chris, I just, I've never been good at keeping that habit going. Well, see message from last week, right? Join a small group, because in that small group, you get a little more accountability, a little more framework to say, we're going to do this together as a group. For some of us, that's indispensable. And so today, I want to encourage you, in this Lenten season, I hope you'll join a small group. I hope you'll pull out your Bible, even for the first time, and begin reading the Scripture. You don't have to know a whole lot about it. You know, you, know, you want to know how far I've come in my life? Because when I was a teenager, I didn't know. I, I knew nothing. I knew nothing. I remember I was sitting on the floor watching the evening news with Dan Rather. It may, it may have been Dan Rather. Or one, of those, one of those guys that are retired now, right? And they were talking about the Dead Sea Scrolls. And they were talking about the Old Testament and the New Testament. I remember I was sitting on the floor. I turned to Mom. She was on the couch. I said, Mom, now I get this Old Testament's like really old, right? It's like thousands of years old. I get, I, you know, I, I understand that. But the New Testament, since it's new, how old is it? 40, 50, 80 years old, right? <laughs> and my mom looked at me. And she's like, ooh, I guess we need to be going to church more. <laughs> and shortly after that, we did start going to church more. But if, if the Lord can take a kid like me, and one of the first times I read the Bible with my own initiative, on, sort of on my own free will, I started with the Gospel of John. I encourage you, you don't have to start with Genesis. I mean, that's, that's a totally different world, though it's a very, very important book. But uh, start with the Gospel. Start with Mark. Start with John. I started with John. And I still remember the first time I opened the Bible for myself, to read it for myself, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God. And the Word was with God. And the light was in Him. And became the light of all people. And I just, I still remember wrestling with those early, I didn't even make it through a whole chapter. I just, if I made it a paragraph, but by the end of that paragraph, it was like, whoa! This is pretty amazing stuff. There's this word that's the framework of the whole universe that is God and was with God, but then took on flesh and became a human being, and we've seen his glory, the glory of a one and only son. And I was blown away. And so that just kept me reading again, week after week, day after day, just to find out a little more. And it began to shape my mind, my heart, my ethics, my life. And I'm still on that journey. And I know you are too. It's probably time to go. But in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, go read your Bible. Search the scriptures. 
because that's one of the keys of being a Methodist. That's part of our Methodist. Method. That's part of our method as a Methodist. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.